0: You are listening to From the Midwest to the Middle East, the latest on U.S. tax, Israeli economy, and lots of in-between, interviewing Israeli and international experts. Chicago, Chicago, Welcome to our podcast. I am Philip Stein, Chicago, president of Philip Stein & Associates. I will show you around. Hi, today I'm happy to have Michael Ben Jacob with me. Michael Ben Jacob is a partner of Private Clients and Tax at K. Scholler. I've had the privilege of knowing Michael for quite a few years. We've worked together on several client matters, and I'm fortunate to have him in my office today. So as part of our podcast series uh, about taxation, particularly for people who either live outside of the country or have money outside of the country, uh, Michael is really, I consider, one of the experts in the United States, if not the world in this area. And uh, I'm fortunate to have him today to discuss his, uh, give me some of his latest insights. So Michael, welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Phil. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for your very generous introduction.
0: Okay, so Michael, you've been, uh, as we say, on the front lines now for quite a few years since this all began, I guess, starting with the, the IRS suing UBS. I don't think any of us realized where this was headed. And how much of our lives would be involved in dealing with uh, disclosure matters and issues having to do with U.S. citizens. But uh, we've gotten through a few programs now, OVDI programs, I guess, one, two, and three. Now there is no deadline pending. Uh, where do you see, is the IRS transitioning now from uh, where there were these hard and pressurized deadlines to a system that it's easier to sort of come in?
1: Yeah, well, I think the IRS has recognized that most of the people who had serious criminal concerns have already come into the programs, the prior programs, if they were intending to come into a program at all. But at the same time, they recognize that there are many uh, uh, taxpayers out there that, through some error, uh, oversight, or just uh, ignorance, while made in good faith, uh, haven't complied with their, their U.S. tax filing obligations. And in that context, they've, in a sense... Uh, loosened the, the the program so that, as you've mentioned, there are no particular deadlines anymore. Taxpayers are more likely now to know what they're getting into because there's a bit more experience having uh, practitioners have lived through the earlier programs. Um, and as a general matter, uh, the IRS has made it clear in certain statements and publications that the programs are not for everyone, in a sense almost inviting uh, what we refer to as quiet voluntary disclosures, as opposed to going into, as you, fully, you well know, uh, the taxpayers always have the option to either go into the formal program uh, or to simply file returns for some period of years retroactively to, uh, to correct their prior errors. And the IRS is, I believe, coming to the view that for many that is uh, an appropriate course of action.
0: In our practice, those we have seen people, again, not... Large numbers, not large financial numbers, but who have chosen the quiet, uh, perhaps just on the F bar side, following one of the procedures where one can file a F bars, and we have not seen the IRS push back or or uh, penalize these people. But again, we do feel as tax practitioners, preparers, it's a big black box. We really don't know what goes on, especially in that facility in detroit where all those f bars are going other than we have these images that they're just overwhelmed compared to what they used to process in the past but do you see a uh, a little more gentler approach that the irs is showing toward maybe as you say people who do not fall into the criminal category
1: well i think so i think the irs has been nervous about trying uh, about uh, sending a message if you will that they're going to go easy, if that's the right word, I put easy on quotes, on, on taxpayers that have been recalcitrant. But at the same time, they have tried to to provide the taxpayers with, with a hook, which both sides can come to an agreement that um, is, is uh, acceptable. So the IRS has said in the last set of FAQs, which appear to apply to the current program as well, that if you owe no tax, for example, they will not... Um, they will not uh, impose penalties. And they've taken a sort of liberal view on that. And what I mean by that is they say if you you owe no tax, even after the application of foreign tax credits, for example, as a strictly technical matter, uh, foreign tax credits should really only be claimed on a timely filed return. So one can't, as a technical matter, amend their return and take a foreign tax credit. However, the IRS has been allowing it and they've said Mm -hmm that in determining whether you owe no tax for purposes of your acquired or noisy voluntary, you can take into account the foreign tax credits, which is an issue I've always been concerned about, and the IRS has let slide. So there are sort of situations like that uh, where where the IRS has said that they'd rather, in a sense, have you come forward one way or the other and, and, and rectify matters um, on a going-forward basis.
0: So that could one say that today if someone came into you, again, they weren't criminal, they didn't know the law, they inherited money, Uh, you know there's, I see here often cases what I call accidental U.S. citizens that uh, I've had a few cases where parents were on sabbatical um, and on the sabbatical, besides getting a degree or some postdoc, they had a child brought this child back now it's 40 years later and that person is an executive or founder of some very big company, and he didn't even know of his U.S. Tablo- tax obligations. Would you say you can give the clients more of a feel for what to expect or what the, you know, cost will be to them?
1: Yeah, I think that that's, I think that's right. I think most clients today we know, unless we have concerns about criminal prosecution um, or criminal liability, uh, and they are of course... There, of course, we do need to have a very fulsome understanding of all of the facts. But once we get comfortable with all the facts, and we make a determination that, it, that it's not a case of criminal prosecution, then uh, we, we advise most clients to go into a quiet type of voluntary. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're seeing most of our clients. Because, again, as you mentioned, uh, the criminals... Uh, come to the table with a criminal mindset, <laughs> All right? right? They haven't been caught until now. <laughs> They're not going to get kill- caught right. hereafter. Right. Right. And so most people find ourselves, as you, may, you mentioned, the, the accidental U.S. person who, through some error, uh, was not aware of of their obligations. So we're better able to tell them. Listen, here's you know, the best option. Here's the quiet, voluntary option that's generally what we'll recommend for people with those circumstances. And we can sort of and we sort of know how that will play out. I mean, my office alone has done several hundred of these of these cases both on the quiet and on the noisy side. And we're also better able to explain to them what will happen if for whatever reason it's determined that it's the case where it's appropriate to enter into the formal program. Uh there too it's sort of a trial by fire, if you will. Uh, the IRS hasn't made it completely clear how they will deal with clients in different circumstances in the formal program. And the only way to know, for example, about internal IRS policy on particular matters is you, is as you have discussions with agents on matters that are pending with those agents, you get a sense of, well, even though there's no written rule on this, the IRS is taking this or that position. And that helps us advise the new clients who are coming in the door.
0: So let me ask you one other question before we change topics. Would you, do you, from your experience, is the quiet approach, when obviously you have to write a letter, why you shouldn't be penalized? Is that a letter that I would see your letterhead on it, or are you sort of the you, pulling the strings? You, and and you,
1: you ask an excellent question, and it really depends on the facts and circumstances of the case. And I'll give you two extremes. Uh, I have a client now that we're doing a voluntary disclosure for and we're going to do a quiet voluntary. Uh, uh, The the quintessential case that you mentioned, the the accidentally U.S. person, mom was in the U.S. for three weeks, gave birth to this gentleman while he was in the U.S., and now uh, moved back here. And uh, the the, the, uh, income he earns is extraordinarily significant. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's many, many, many millions of dollars Mm -hmm. every year. So we have no doubt that this is going to be audited. And in that context, someone is going to read whatever is written carefully. And no one is going to believe that a person at this level of wealth, right, even though he has all the right answers to him, he's clearly not a criminal, he's paid all of his taxes mm-hmm. in the United States and so on. No one is going to believe that he sat down and wrote a letter. <laughs> all right. uh. They know that his accountant or his lawyer right. is, 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 is the person behind all this. So we write, in those cases, we write the letter, we sign it, we put it on, generally on a lawyer's letterhead, um, and we take it from there. However, the other extreme is we have many people who have much more modest means in the same, that same set of circumstances. The numbers don't really matter. And sometimes we think that the letter will present better in, uh, if it comes from the client directly or from the accountant because it's more likely for a client of more modest means to be dealing directly with their accountant as opposed to a law firm. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I say, we've even had some cases where we, again, we assist the client with, with wording and so on but where the client sat down and hand-wrote mm. the letter wow. to the IRS and signed uh, his or her own name and sent it in. And we've been fortunate enough on all of our quiet filings never to have heard back again wow. from, the, <laughs> from the IRS, which is exactly the result that that, that, you be, hope that, that, would, that we hoped for.
0: Okay, excellent. All right, let me let me change the subject to the filing. And again, it's, it's something you and I have worked together on, and uh, I've been practicing myself for over 30 years And I'd say the first uh, 28 of them, 29 uh, of 32 years, I never saw someone who actually returned their U.S. passport. I saw a lot of people return green cards, but I never saw someone, especially if they got that passport through a process of naturalization. Uh, The last years I've seen people, because of either the burdensome filing compliance requirements uh, other issues inheritances that might be coming down uh, people say you know what and I guess maybe the they maybe have another passport let's say particularly if they have an EU so they don't feel uh, that they're that uh, immobile that they can still travel the world so I am seeing people consider this and do this as we as we know together uh, what's your take is is the Iris? Taking these, accepting them as is, or are you starting to see some audits with regard to these expatriation cases?
1: Uh, well, I'll first comment by saying my own experience mirrors yours in the sense that prior to 2008, I would have, I don't know, 10 clients a year that would inquire about the idea and one every three years that would do it. Mm-hmm. And post 2008, we have a steady stream of clients, I mean, a dozen, maybe two dozen a year, who, have, who give up their U.S. citizenship. And not just people living in the United States, I mean, uh, in Israel, excuse me, but people right. uh, with, uh, all over the world. And um, it is sort of very much a niche area of, of learning and, and experience. What I found, though, is that the IRS, I believe, is my take on this, that the IRS is not well-versed in, in these rules themselves. Mm. And, if, and there's probably good reason for that. One of the, the things that, as part of the process, when one gives up their U.S. citizenship, um, every quarter the Federal Register prints the names of the people who gave up their U.S. citizenship. So you can actually track, statistically, how many people give up their U.S. citizenship every year. And uh, by latest count, the Federal Register lists, at the end of a year nowadays, maybe a thousand mm. people. whereas. In the earlier years, say going back five years or so, there would be yeah, 100 or mm. less mm-hmm. in, the, in the course of a year. Um, so it's increased dramatically, tenfold in the past five years. But I also read a statistic along the lines of the IRS receives something like 150 million tax returns <laughs> every year all right, of all sorts. So, for an institution, a governmental agency that receives 150 million returns a year, and only a 1,000 involve mm, this mm, particular mm-hmm. issue, it's understandable that they're not particularly well-versed in, in the area. So, for that, and that may well be why we never hear back to them. Uh-huh. Right, so, we've had, as I mentioned in the past number of years, many, many, many clients who have expatriated, and we've done all the appropriate tax filings, and it's been met with a resounding silence, which is, again, what we're most (laughs) most pleased with.
0: So the people that I've talked to, as you say, they inquire, they say, you know what, I'm ready to go. But before they cross what I call the ultimate threshold, the question always is, can I still get into America? Okay, and we're tax people. We're not immigration people. We're not... helping issue visas. Um, What's your thought on that?
1: Well, I mean, I appreciate your disclaimer. We are tax and private client planning lawyers. I'm not an immigration lawyer, but we do work closely with immigration lawyers in in this context. Um, And I certainly appreciate the concern. There are a few things I would highlight. First, there is a a question on the visa application for... uh, Israelis who want to visit the United States as to whether they have previously had U.S. citizenship and have given it up. So obviously, if that's the case, you answer yes. They don't ask for any explanations. It's a yes no question. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of all of our many clients in Israel who have given up their U.S. citizenship, uh, they've all applied for visas, and they've all received the visas. And so whatever that's worth, I mean, I don't know if that's enough to be a statistical sampling, but we've never seen or heard of people who have had difficulty getting into the U.S. Uh, in terms of obtaining a visa from Israel. Now, anything is possible, of course, and we don't really know what uh, the embassies are looking at in determining if the visa is denied, but but at least our experience has been is that it's not an issue, number one. Number two, what we often will discuss with a client on the practical side of these things, not just the tax side, is whether they have another passport or whether they can obtain another passport. Mm-hmm. All right? And... Very often, passports can be obtained through rights of descent, even if they don't they don't already have another passport. So we have obtained passports for other for Israelis, uh, or for other non for other people living in other countries, uh, through rights of descent from places like Australia, Belgium, uh, the Netherlands, uh, whereas Hungary. Poland, Poland is very difficult, but, <laughs> but Poland, um, and so on and so forth. So there are all kinds of possibilities in terms of obtaining passports. The last thing I would mention is, if you don't have another passport already, is Israel is now in the process of finalizing its arrangements with the United States to become part of the U.S. visa waiver program. And last I read, they expect in the next year wow. that Israel will be part of that program, uh, the issues with Israel are different than EU countries and Canada and other countries that, and Australia that have this visa waiver program, um, in that there were some heightened security risks the United States feels. And so there may be some hoops one needs to jump through in order to qualify for the visa waiver program. Currently, if you are in a country that has this program with the United States, and there are many, there must be 20 or so, uh, there's an online application. You put in the information and you get a number back, and you take that number and you stack stamp it into your your passport, and you're you're good to go. I believe Israel it'll be a bit more complicated that to than that to address some security concerns, but there will be a, a visa waiver program in place in the near future, and when that happens, obviously that will alleviate many of those concerns.
0: Okay, very very helpful and in, insightful. I'm going to move to another topic, which I'd say is. Uh, something that I'm often surprised by well I'm not surpri- I'm surprised by it but I'm more surprised by this, the surprise of the client meaning uh, since 1998 Israelis it's hard to believe it's only been a little more than 14 years but 14 years ago, an Israeli could not open a bank account outside of Israel. They could not buy a piece of real estate. they could not invest in a company. Uh, without permission from the Bank of Israel. And as I'm sure you see in your work how active Israelis are all over the world, particularly in the United States. Um, And they're shocked to find out that although they may be investing in the U.S. stock market and have a very uh, nice broker somewhere down on Wall Street, that if, God forbid, something happens to them, meaning they die suddenly, uh, a good portion of that... Those stocks, they may not have to pay income tax on them, but they have a big estate tax problem. Um, someone just doesn't, the brokers don't give them heads up. Uh, I know this is something, this is you work on, inbound for high net worth. What are the types of things, without giving away you know, trade secrets, <laughs> that people should be thinking about right. when they're looking to move some of their wealth, let's say, into the United States?
1: Sure. Well, um, again, you highlight a very important issue, and one that people have not been sensitive to traditionally, people outside our immediate area of, of, of practice and expertise. Um, certainly, the state tax is a very heavy burden for, for Israelis in particular, because they would not otherwise pay a state tax, Correct. unlike uh, people who live in other countries, where there may be an estate tax, and where there is very often an estate tax treaty with the United States, so at least you avoid double taxation. Um, in any event, I would tend to say that the primary structures that one is looking for is to separate ownership between the individual and the underlying asset. Uh, the general rule is any any property that is deemed to be U.S. situs property and it's a term of art is subject to estate tax with a very small exception equal in value to sixty thousand dollars so clearly U.S. real estate is um, U.S. situs uh, but also people are surprised to learn stock in exactly. U.S. securities right. is also U.S. situs or U.S. partnerships also U.S. situs so some simple ways of divorcing the ownership Direct ownership, but so see, use a blocker company, mm-hmm. for example. Uh, uh, someone in Israel, a very simple structure, uh, can take their portfolio, the U.S. portfolio, and contribute it to an Israeli family company, which, for the most part, is going to be a, uh, a transparent for uh, for Israeli purposes. So it's right. a tax neutral mm-hmm. transaction. But from a U.S. perspective, the um, the uh, the Isra- Well, you may need. You may wish to make an election, but uh, one way or the other, from a U.S. perspective. The U.S. will say, all right, what does the Israeli person own? The Israeli person owns a foreign corporation. And, that, and then the analysis stops there. The Israeli person does not own the underlying property. Um, it is more difficult to deal with situations such as real estate, particularly if they're, it's already owned. Right? But And I won't go into full details here, right. but there are, for example, sh- uh, trust structures that can be used to uh, ensure that there's both estate tax protection and can give some significant income tax benefits by avoiding the FERP, the rules, mm-hmm. special rules on withholding with respect to non-U.S. people who invest in U.S. real estate. There are uh, certain types of leverage rules that can be used um, that can reduce the value of the estate uh, of the property in the U.S., so while it may be technically part of the estate, its value is reduced to zero or close to zero, so that there's no tax ultimate tax due. Uh, And there are a host of other things that one can think about. These are all much easier to put into place at the beginning, before the investment is made, and particularly with respect to real estate. Once the real estate is already owned, there are things that can be done, but it's much more complicated. Um, So I guess the, the message there is get your advice early and often.
0: Okay, I'm going to conclude just again ask to look into your crystal ball and I don't <laughs> I, I don't know if any of us know the answer, but uh at the end of 2012, the Bush tax cuts are going to expire. Uh this is going to affect a lot of people, certainly clients of mine, uh Israelis uh, or Americans living here, let's say who have dividend income particularly. Uh what are you hearing from uh Midtown Manhattan, and uh, yeah, it's, it's um, a very
1: interesting question. I would, I would say that right now everyone is confused and no one really knows. There's a, a everyone's holding the, their breath to sort of see what happens. My guess is that the Bush tax cuts will be allowed to expire and that, uh, for example, capital gains tax rates will move to 20 percent that the estate and gift tax exemption amounts will go from five million to one million. Wow. I take a pessimistic view. Wow. And, and the reason I do is because it's an election year. Mm-hmm. And there's no one that's going to get up, neither Republican or Democrat, is going to get up on the podium and say, let's now reduce taxes on the wealthy, or the perceived wealthy. Particularly given how um, wealth has played out in the past year um, in the press and in the campaign. I mean, just think about the difficulty Mitt Romney is having by virtue of the fact that he right. comes from a wealthy, a wealthy background, um, and the and and so on. So I I really take a pessimistic view. I don't see that any any party, uh, and certainly not the current regime, is going to make a stand to to permit those cuts to stay in
0: place. Okay, so I guess without, it's pretty easy then to read it between the lines, and that you are advising your clients to use up the. Gift exemptions to the max and uh, absolutely, can... absolutely, even if it is
1: certainly from the gift uh, exemption. You I know, mean, have clients who have hesitated uh, because they don't want to get too involved in complex structures, even if it's just you know, take whatever cash that you're willing to gift and put it into a simple trust structure uh, and do nothing more, it is, it's, it is money well invested. Very
0: good. Well, I thank you very much. This was very informative, and I hope to you know, as the year evolves and we'll see if your prediction worked out. Maybe I'll place, place a bet in Las Vegas and, <laughs> and see how we do. But uh, I think we're in again for probably an interesting year and post-election, I'm sure we're going to see uh, a lot of changes. So uh, we look forward to so talking. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed our podcast. Feel free to visit us at www.peacestein.com or look for Phillips Nine Associates on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Goodbye.